From New Orleans, Louisiana, it's Empirical's PowerTech Podcast. This is the place where we talk about bringing technology to the power industry. Our goal is to educate you on the most popular trends, bring you actionable strategies from industry thought leaders, and help you make sure your utility is prepared for the future. I'm your host, Matthew Sachs, president of Empirical, former utility engineer and power industry advocate. Today's episode is the fourth in our continuing series regarding cloud solutions and security considerations. In our first podcast, we focused on cloud-based solutions and security for power systems. In the second podcast, we discussed cloud data security, the where, who, and how. And in the third podcast, we took a deeper dive into where we are today with security, compliance, and the cloud. In today's episode, we'll have a roundtable discussion regarding FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt and touch on topics that may be holding entities back from adopting the cloud. Our panel is made up of the participants for each of our previous podcasts to include Dr. Nathan Wallace, Director of Cyber Operations for Cyberical, Maggie Powell, Principal Industry Specialist in the Energy Sector with Amazon Web Services, or AWS, Samara Moore, Security Assurance Senior Manager and Global Energy Specialist, leading AWS's security and compliance program for regulated industries and public sectors in the Americas, and Rajan Banerjee, Senior Partner Solutions Architect at AWS, focused on the power and utilities vertical. Welcome back to each of you. And before we get started, I just wanted to set the stage by framing the discussion in the context of dispelling misconceptions of cloud FUD by simply asking the following three questions. First, Should we be replacing fear with facts? Second, would it be better to be proactive and remove uncertainty by developing and implementing an action plan? And finally, third, can you alleviate doubt with experience and testing? Nathan, I'll turn the discussion over to you to get us started. Thank you, Matthew. With this being the fourth podcast in this series, we decided to change things up a bit and focus on specific perceptions or assumptions that lead to fear, uncertainty, and doubt when it comes to using the cloud for power system and other industry-related applications. It's not to say that all perceptions are completely unfounded, even though some really are. It's more to kind of say, as an industry, we really need to strive to replace fear with knowledge. This is especially true for the cloud, and if we are ever going to obtain the levels of reliability and resiliency that the future smart grid really and fundamentally promises. So, for instance, kind of, you know, a little personal story here. One kind of fear-driven misconception I recently observed was from a utility on the West Coast. In order to increase operational reliability, their system protection engineers wanted and and honestly kind of needed a way to monitor system disturbances, diagnose faults, and, you know, all from their kind of back office environment. We came up with multiple solutions to facilitate this, one of which leveraged the cloud in combination with data diodes to passively extract the required information that they needed, right? So what that means is no remote sessions, no interactive uh, kind of remote sessions that would facilitate a lot of the security concerns. However, out of fear of the regulatory standards, the compliance department stepped in and said no. The reason was this perception that somehow the NERC-SIP standards prohibited the use of the cloud in any form. For me, what's interesting here is that that this unfounded fear of the NERC standards 
which are standards federally mandated to increase reliability, actually resulted in a utility not moving forward with something that in a very secure and compliant manner would have actually increased the operational reliability of their system. While we ended up going with one of our alternative solutions we came up with, this this one, this kind of experience here just didn't sit right with me. So Samara, what's a common misconception that you often hear in the industry? Well, thanks, Nathan. And before I respond, I want to say it's nice to be back. And I appreciate the chance to discuss some of the comments and assumptions that we hear. Bringing these questions and comments forward is important to understanding cloud technology. We're in the midst of a shift in technology, and it's normal for such a change to prompt questions. The real opportunity here, Nathan, is to evaluate those areas that create uncertainty and those areas that drive concerns about risk with cloud technology, and for us to gather real data to inform business decisions. So back to your question. One common question in this area is around use of government cloud or often referred to as GovCloud. On one hand, some may question whether they have to be in GovCloud if they are a public sector utility or if utilities are a part of critical infrastructure, then they have to be in GovCloud, right? That's a question anyway. <laughs> On the other hand, I also hear the question of whether or not a utility can even be in GovCloud if they're not part of the government. So to start on this topic, let's further explore the terminology, specifically the name Gov or government cloud. It's called a government cloud because it's architected and designed to address specific regulatory and compliance requirements of government agencies, and that can be at the federal, state, or local level. Specific to AWS, the AWS GovCloud regions allow customers to adhere to multiple US government mandates. I'll list just a few. The US International Traffic and Arms Regulations, known as ITAR, the Federal Risk and Management Program, known as FedRAMP, high requirements, the Defense Federal Acquisition Regulation Supplement, known as DFARS, and the DOD Security Requirements Guide, Impact Levels 2, 4, and 5. And there are also several other security and compliance requirements that are met within the AWS GovCloud region. But choosing between GovCloud and the commercial regions is really informed by the compliance needs of the customer. And those compliance needs may be based on regulatory requirements, as well as their internal security requirements that are driven by their business needs. AWS GovCloud is an excellent option for customers who must utilize US persons only for their cloud environment. For instance, a generator um, within the nuclear industry can use GovCloud to meet their ITAR obligations. And at the same time, GovCloud is available to customers with nuclear generation assets, whether they're government owned or not. For customers, including government customers that have workloads that are not in scope for ITAR, they can also consider commercial regions. So to sum it up, 
All AWS regions are available to customers, whether government or non-government. The customer decision really is based on their specific operational and regulatory requirements. And then as a reminder, you know, customers should talk to their cloud service provider because a government cloud could be defined differently depending on the service provider. And they should confirm how a government cloud is defined within their own cloud service provider. Yeah, that's a great clarification there, Samar. Uh, sometimes how things are labeled can make a difference really in those perceptions. Plus, I've seen how AWS continues to add certified services to both GovCloud and the commercial regions. So it's really worth exploring how the resources evolve and continue to improve. Perceptions can quickly become outdated, especially as these technologies evolve. That's so true. Our FedRAMP program, just as an example, um, today we currently have 86 in our commercial regions, and those are 86 services authorized and 75 services authorized for our FedRAMP program within GovCloud. On the DOD side, we have 80 services and features that have been authorized at the impact level five and impact level four. Also, AWS continues to expand its regions, availability zones, and services. Today, AWS spans 77 availability zones with 24 geographic regions around the world and has announced plans for nine more availability zones and three more regions in Indonesia, Japan, and Spain. So it's really valuable to ask your cloud service provider which services are available in which regions to help inform how each region may be able to support your regulatory or compliance objectives. And then, as we said, things change. So check periodically for what may be new. Thanks, Samara. Rajan, what's a FUD item that you often hear? Thanks, Nathan. It's good to be back on this panel today, and thank you, Matthew, for having us here. There are a few common misconceptions about cloud that I keep coming across. One is the notion that because the cloud makes it easy to provision new services, that it also makes unauthorized access simpler. It seems to imply that cloud is this wild west with no controls in place. This is ironic on so many levels and paints the picture that once a customer opens a cloud account, then all personnel have access to do what they want without any checks and controls. The fact that something is easy or that something can scale does not imply that there are no controls. I mean, I almost feel like yelling out, this is crazy talk, right? Uh, and, and I just did that. <laughs> but but getting, getting a little serious here, uh, you know, historically people were so accustomed to taking months to provision a single server, right? Uh, that they start thinking that there must be something wrong if this can be done in 15 seconds. Speed, resilience, agility, elasticity, and better IT experience do not come at the cost of security. And this needs to sink in. Security is not being compromised by the cloud. In fact, the opposite is true. AWS offers its customers several ways to control access to the cloud and resources in it. The first is IAM, Identity and Access Management. You cannot do anything on AWS without having been granted permissions to do so. 
you need a user account on IAM, and then your account needs to be given permissions. The customer can integrate their SAML2 identity management system, like Active Directory, with AWS IAM to further control and centralize this access. They can even create service control policies at account levels or on groups of accounts to restrict the usage of certain AWS services. There are many ways to control access and usage. So this notion uh, that we got an account on AWS and now we have no control is just wrong. You know, we have so many customers express concern about that server under a developer's desk running something destructive or that they don't want running uh, or being noticed. Today, it's really hard, if not impossible, for CIOs to know how many rogue or IT servers uh, or shadow IT servers there are and, and where they might be. With AWS, CIOs can use tools like AWS Config, resource tagging to see exactly what cloud assets their company is using at any moment in real time. With CloudTrail, they can tell exactly who is doing what on AWS, which includes provisioning new services, servers, uh, turning them on, turning them off, or even just getting a list of all the servers. Everything is logged and made available for, for review. You know the who, when, and from where of every action. No more hidden servers under, under the desk or anonymously placed servers in a rack and plugged into the corporate network. No more scheduling a walk down a data center counting servers, wondering why the number does not match your network scans. I've been there, it's not fun. You think you've got 2,000 servers and, and you're detecting traffic from 2,400. Where are the other 400 servers? This does not happen on cloud, not on AWS. So true. I've seen it time and time again where a virtual private cloud is actually way easier to both manage and secure as compared to its on-prem equivalent. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'd like to revisit the topic we, that we talked about at length during the second cloud podcast, which is data ownership. We hear the recurring question of who owns my data when I put it in the cloud. There are many who claim that typically they transfer ownership uh, of data to the cloud operator. First of all, we need to understand that cloud is a general term for IT services offered on demand over the internet. So to say in the cloud, I lose ownership of my data. Now that's a very broad stroke of the brush. I can definitively say that if you, the customer, put your data on AWS, you retain ownership of your data. Now, as a customer, you could be using a third-party service, a SaaS provider, and you're giving your data to them, and they in turn could be storing this data in the cloud or on-prem. In such a scenario, you must understand the nature of your contract with the SaaS provider with respect to data ownership and access to your own data. I see this many times. Data is so valuable today, and some companies will sign a contract which denies them access to their own data. So reach out to your SaaS providers and understand the nature of the service you're signing up for. Or reach out to us at AWS. We can help you with solutions and partners such that your data stays where you put it and is owned by you the way it should be. Nathan, with the SaaS solutions, Grid Intel, 
uh, offers. How, how do you see this play out with respect to data ownership? Yeah, so for us at Grid Intel, all customer data is owned by the customer. A customer may ask us to examine the data or use it for professional engineering services that we also provide. But at the end of the day, the customer owns the data. So next, let's go over to uh, Maggie. Uh, what is an item that kind of stands out for you? Hey, everybody. Thanks, Nathan and Matthew, for having us back. Um, always appreciate being part of the conversation. Um, I, I'll add a couple of thoughts to this. Um, the first one I'll put in there, I'm going to build on what Ranjan was discussing in terms of ownership, but with a little bit of a twist towards that customer control and visibility uh, to the data that they own. So we hear hesitations due to a sense that changing infrastructure ownership and sharing responsibilities somehow would result in a loss to the customer. But this paints an incomplete picture and makes out change as if it's only bad without taking into account the value of making the change. So losing something that's holding you back is actually a great opportunity. So no doubt that the, the move to the cloud is an operational shift for a customer, definitely a change. But understanding the new relationships and the division of labor, as well as the accountability and visibility tools that can help uh, the customer, those aspects can help gain confidence in the cloud. So it is true that adopting the cloud means that the customer moves away from its own infrastructure to a cloud service provider infrastructure, which provides the advantages that we've talked about on the other podcasts, such as agility, resiliency, and um, certainly not least the cost savings. The customer reduces their burden of maintaining infrastructure and frees up personnel to focus on other operational or innovation work. So coupled with this change in infrastructure ownership is getting used to this shared responsibility concept that we've discussed in each one of the prior podcasts. And it may seem that shared responsibility is new to the cloud, but really shared responsibility already exists between customers and vendors of many services. It's a valuable way to gain expertise and use the strengths of others. And with cloud, defining shared responsibility is a transparent process between the customer and the, the cloud service provider, which is really valuable for customers to understand the respective roles and to review policies, procedures, and controls that they will inherit from the cloud service provider. So customers decide on what functions to perform with their data in the cloud. And as Ranjan emphasized, on AWS, the customer owns their data and they control how they use it. And for visibility, the cloud comes with features and services, those that, you know, like the ones that Ranjan described, which actually increase customers' visibility into their inventory and activities on the cloud. Plus the automation and speed enables customers to identify and respond quickly when needed. So this is just one example of how getting acquainted with the tools and features available in the cloud can increase comfort in the changes associated with moving to the cloud. So I'll turn to, to one other one. Um, in a similar vein, we hear concerns around data deletion sometimes. Some have said that deleting data in the cloud is incomplete because the data is spread over multiple storage devices. As well, others have said that the shared resources in the cloud mean that one tenant's data could end up in another tenant's storage if not thoroughly deleted. But the tools and practices that are in place prevent such concerns, and some of those tools are controlled by the customer. So this topic is real interesting to me because the discussion covers both logical and physical aspects when it comes to the cloud. 
When customers put their data in a cloud asset, say on an AWS EBS volume or in a S3 bucket, the asset has a unique identifier. It's called an Amazon resource name or ARN. In addition, customers can tag their data. And this is how a customer identifies its data regardless of where it re resides in the cloud. Customers can, can delete their data or the cloud asset which, in which the data resides by logically deleting the resource or asset which would delete the data associated with it. And the CloudTrail audit will confirm the deletion. So this is larger scale than perhaps what happens on a storage area network in your own data center, but it's the same logical process. That second component of this perception goes to reuse and disposal of physical assets. This is where customers should inquire and understand the, what practices the cloud service provider follows for media sanitizing. So for example, AWS follows NIST 888 guidelines. AWS resources are presented to customers as raw, unformatted block devices that have been wiped prior to being made available for use. And the wiping occurs immediately before reuse so that the customer can be assured that the wipe process completed. And of course, there's other options too for customers to take additional measures to protect their data. They can use encryption for data in storage, and they can use third-party disk wipe software before decommissioning a storage resource if they choose to. So those are just a couple perceptions that we hear. But like Samara said, new technologies and changing practices really should prompt questions. It's part of the learning process. And being receptive to new, new technologies and new advantages is really valuable. Yeah, I often see that as well. And, and since the adoption of the cloud in the industry is a relatively new, it's easy for all this fear and doubt to kind of spread like almost like wildfire. Samara, in our first podcast, you discussed the path that customers can take to understand their business, operational, and security needs while preparing for cloud adoption. However, on this topic of fear and doubt, how can electric utilities and other stakeholders in the industry overcome these kind of common misconceptions about the cloud? Well, we've said it several times now, right? These questions are normal. These perceptions and questions are part of the learning curve. What's important is to dig deeper and really evaluate and get real data to inform decisions. This discussion, like I said earlier, is really helpful to challenge some of these assumptions um, and really ask questions that are important to this process. However, I want to go a little bit further and say we find that the challenges for customers moving past perceptions are not solely technical. So steps such as leadership, setting a direction and creating expectations to even allow for these questions to be asked and challenge assumptions, you know, that plays an important role as well as training on cloud services and cloud technology so that um, people can become comfortable in the concepts and the processes around cloud. But part of that is also defining your business objectives and understanding your requirements and priorities, you know, so you can better understand your risk and make the most informed decisions. Another key part of this is working across all of your internal teams. And that could be teams across different organizations that may have varying points of reference, but really working together to define a shared understanding of the goals and priorities 
All of this together really helps to inform and address questions related to use of the cloud. And again, getting to the data to answer those questions to inform your decision around use of the cloud. I wanna highlight that our well-architected framework, it includes a section on operational excellence. So really these non-technical areas that offers an approach to cover these areas along with best practices that can assist. Additionally, AWS offers a number of resources online that stakeholders may find useful. Remember, getting started doesn't mean you have to do everything at once. We call it a cloud journey for a reason. We often work with customers to build a plan for the short term, medium term, and long term to the degree that you can do long term with today's technology. That's a great reminder to always break the concerns and fears down into their meaningful, kind of more manageable chunks that can then be analyzed and, and hopefully those fears alleviated. So to conclude our uh, podcast today, what is a key takeaway that each of you would like our listeners to remember or be aware of when looking at the cloud? This is Maggie. I guess I'll offer a kind of a quick takeaway. Um, I, I just offer the suggestion to read and listen to as much as you can, but read and listen critically and ask yourself, is what I'm hearing giving me the complete picture? So thinking about what might be missing in the story is a great starting point for a dialogue. Why don't I pass it to Ranjan next? Thanks, Maggie. Uh, so technology is constantly evolving. This is not going to stop. And there is and will always be a lot of information out there, some of which will not be accurate. So use all the resources you have to learn and keep up to date with technology. AWS offers a lot of free resources for training and documentation, right? So take advantage of that, reach out to us and be informed. Samara? I'll wrap up with simply saying, have the dialogue, um, search for data, answers to your questions so that you really can make the best informed decision for your customers, your operations, and for your business. Great stuff, y'all. Uh, so with that, Samara, Rajan, Maggie, thank you as always for joining us today to help break these issues down for our listeners and hopefully dispel just truly the amount of FUD that's out there. It's a real pleasure. We would like to invite the audience to submit questions which we can dive into in a future podcast. To submit questions, or if you would like to see any of the resources mentioned in this podcast, you can go to www.empirical.com. Well, that about wraps up this edition of the PowerTech Podcast. If you haven't yet, please log in to wherever you subscribe to the podcast and both rate this show and leave a comment as that really helps new subscribers in the power industry to find us. Also, for more free insights on bringing technology to the power industry, make sure to visit Empirical.com. We post free white papers, articles, and all of our previous podcasts there. Plus, you can register for a free 3D strategy planning session call with one of our 3D planning specialists. Again, you can do all of that and much more at Empirical.com. Please stay tuned and join us for the next episode of the PowerTech Podcast. And until next time, keep engineering powerful solutions.